And do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. Just as dreams accompany much labor, so also a fool's, vo- a fool's voice comes with many, many words. When you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it, because you, He does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Better that you do not vow than that you vow and do not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth bring guilt on you. And do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry with your words and destroy the work of your hands? For many dreams bring futility, so do many words. Therefore, fear God. Fear God. We have been in the book of Ecclesiastes for a few weeks. And as we have spent time in the book, we have noticed that the writer, Solomon, the the teacher as he refers to himself, has been lamenting about everything else that takes place around him. And you almost would think when you come to a passage like Ecclesiastes chapter 5, this has nothing to do with everything else that he says. That this is disconnected from the rest of the text. Uh, He's made this abrupt shift from chapter 4. And as we have been talking about this worship for, for these four chapters, we've walked through the ideas of knowledge and power and pleasure and wealth and achievement. And now he's coming to us, and it seems like he's talking about an altogether different topic. That he's moved on from knowledge and power and pleasure and wealth and achievement. And now he's going to talk about what takes place when we approach God with a different type of worship. And he's telling us what it means for us to meet with God. What it means for us to come into the presence of God. What it means for us to look and consider our garbage worship before God. I have had the pleasure of preaching and teaching for a few years and... Um, part of that, not all of that, but there have been large portions of my life where I've been able to go to churches and preach what we call a revival. Now, revival doesn't happen because you schedule something, but uh, churches, if you have any familiarity, we schedule revivals and we have this time on our calendar where a conference is set, preacher's going to come, he's going to preach, and, and I have had numerous conversations before I would go eat dinner where someone would feed me fried okra and tell me that it was healthy. That It's not. It, okra is not healthy unless it is just raw and then it's gross. But uh, as I have done this, I've had conversations after worship services in the highways and byways, the crooks and crevices of the south and in much of Texas, where someone will come up to me and they will say, preacher, which is always a weird thing to be called. Preacher, that was a good sermon. Well, thank you, plumber. I appreciate that, electrician. They will then say, Preacher, that was a great sermon. I hope that they listened. I hope that they listened. Old Testament scholar, there's a guy named Derek Kidner, and he says this, the well-meaning person, as he talks about this passage in Ecclesiastes, where we're looking today, He says, the well-meaning person who likes a good song and turns up cheerfully enough to church, but who listens with half an ear and never quite gets round to what he has volunteered to do for God, that's who this passage is for. 
This passage is not for people outside of the church. This is for people who are here regularly. It's for church people. As that friend of mine, the plumber, may say, church folk. This is for all of us who ever enter into any kind of worship. Now, the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes has said, I've been talking about knowledge, and I've been talking about power, and I've been talking about pleasure, and I've been talking about wealth, and I've been talking about achievement. But friends, let's just be truthful. As he talks about those things, he's talking about worship. All of those things, however, just seem to culminate on themselves. The worship of oneself for the sake of oneself so that you are not missed in this consideration of God. I hope they... Listen, so for me this morning as I stand before those of us who have chosen not to go on spring break, I hope that we listen to the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes when he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Better to approach in obedience than to offer sacrifices as fools do, for they ignorantly do wrong. So the actual reading of the text reads, Pay attention to where your feet happen to be taking you. Where are your feet taking you? This is you and I not being the people who are caught on a video in the mall as we walk into a fountain because we're staring at our phone. So if you're asking questions about this text, and I know you are, we have to ask ourselves, well, who are we worshiping in this passage? Well, it's pretty clear who we're worshiping. God is mentioned six six times in these seven verses. So who do we worship? We worship this God, but not the ambiguous God that so many of us have come to know in 2020 where we look around and we see that God is just this thing who is out there. He's this force. He's this cosmic idea. God's not that. Now, for those of us who are believers in Jesus, before we judge those who are outside, let's realize that the God who we claim to worship sometimes is that. That's the way that we respond to Him, the way that we treat Him, the way that we talk about Him when we talk about Him tritely. Who is it that we worship? We worship the God that we've been reading about in the book of Ecclesiastes who says everything is meaningless apart from me. The God who is good, the God who is eternal, the God who is just, the God who is wise, the God who is holy. So if this is who God is, we then have to ask, well, where is it that we're worshiping? The house of God. Here in Ecclesiastes, it's referring to Solomon's temple. It's the center of everything for the Jewish person. It's, this, it's massive in size and in grandeur, and it was intended to draw people's attention to the greatness of God. But even the builder has missed the God who he is claiming to build for. We see that historically because it took Solomon twice as long to build his own house as he did the temple. And Solomon is pointing out to us on the back side of his life that worship is a sham if you forget about God and just start going through the motions of offering up sacrifices. The word obedience, again, let's read verse 1 again. Guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Better to approach God with obedience. The word obedience can be translated, listen. Better to approach God and listen. Listen to Him. To hear God. We all think that God is in heaven existing to make us happy. 
we make Bible verses about ourselves. That we should lead like Joshua. That we should be brave like David. We miss that God is saying that when you approach me, I want you to approach me and realize that there is danger here. That there is something about me that is altogether different than you. But that's some, for whatever reason, it has divided itself from what actually takes place on Sunday mornings. So I've been in Lake Jackson for three years. You know that. You guys are home folk. I see you every week. And I talked to you about the badges that you wear. And just so, that, so we're clear, how many of you have to have some type of clearance to go to work? Can you raise your hand? So, okay, and how many of you, just so I've got those hands up, so that I can include every other hand in the room, how many of you know someone who has to have clearance to go to work? That's all of us. And there are numerous reasons for clearance. One of the reasons that we have clearance for our jobs is because of uh, the uh, confidential information that should not be passed on beyond who happens to be there. Another reason is maybe, just maybe, what we're walking into is a dangerous situation. That there's something that is there that could cause problems for people. That there's something that is there that would cause harm to people if it were in the wrong hands. So when we talk about the idea of... So we live in a place, chemical plants everywhere. The idea of clearance to those things is really important because I don't want some schmuck walking in. I want people who know what they're doing and know why they are there. When we look into this passage and we're talking about the God who we approach in worship, he's talking about the idea of are you considering what's happening or are you just scanning your badge as you walk into a room like this? As you walk into any religious situation or religious setting, are you looking around and seeing that where you are is about whose presence you're in? There's danger. And we don't need to forget it. This doesn't mean that God doesn't want you drinking coffee during worship. This doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to enjoy yourself as you interact with other believers. But what it does mean is you realize the one who makes the coffee taste good. I don't think it tastes good. The God who, who allows that relationship for, that causes you to smile to be in effect. That God is who we approach a place like this for. There is danger, and we do not need to forget it. That's why we have Jesus telling us we're at this temple, and we're at this temple when we get to John chapter 2, where I had our friend read from earlier. In John chapter 2, you see the idea of approaching God, meeting with God. The Jewish Passover was near, and there was going to be an approach to the presence of God. And the Jewish Passover, we see, was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He goes and he takes the disciples. They are going to go through the steps of meeting with God. In the temple, when he gets there, he sees that there are ox being sold, sheep being sold, doves being sold, and he found that money changers were sitting there. Now, historically, just for the sake of context, I want to point out that that's not necessarily a bad thing that those things were there. As a matter of fact, as Jews were spread everywhere... One of the goals of having animals to purchase was for you when you traveled across the country, across what they knew as the world to offer up your sacrifice, you did not have to travel with a sheep. It's hard enough to travel with children and they talk to you. 
But they would get there and you would purchase your sheep. The thing is, what we do as human beings is if we see that there is a way that we can take advantage of something, our hearts do. We can tort good things and we make them wicked. We can tort neutral things. So these sheep are there, the oxen are there, the birds are there. The birds were for the poorer people to offer up sacrifices. You get there, you purchase what you need to purchase, and then you take it in for the atonement. You've made a purchase, and there will be a sacrifice made because of your purchase. When it got rough and people began to take advantage of a, an important situation, more animals were brought in. And these animals were not just on the outskirts of the place of sacrifice, on the outskirts of the temple. They're crowding the temple. They, Jesus gets there and things don't look right. So my wife is a hostess. She's the hostess with the Moses. Her mother is also a hostess. I believe it's genetic. They like for things to look amazing and taste amazing, and they don't like for things to be lame. We are opposed to lame things at our house. Hypothetically, let's imagine that Hope and her mother are planning a huge festival, a party. to And I'm talking deep south, south Mississippi party. So don't show up with your mismatched tablecloths. The two of them, let's think, let's imagine they would schedule this party on a week where they've been away for the entirety of the time. But they call... Hope's dad and myself. Now, they've been married for a long time. Not too long. I don't want to make it sound like they're old. But they've been married for a while, so he knows how to do what his wife says. I'm still not great at it. And he also knows how to do things. And on their way back, they get stuck. They make a call to us, and they ask Mike and myself. I call him Mr. Mike, like I'm driving Miss Daisy. And when they... When they call, they begin to explain to us everything that needs to happen for this party to be what they want it to be. They begin to tell us things that we're going to have to pick up at the grocery store. They begin to tell us the things that we need to make sure are out so the party looks fantastic. They begin to tell us where tablecloths are, where uh, room decorations are. When they get there, they look around at what Mike and I have done... And they begin to walk around the room noticing what we've done. Now, you know, husbands, if you have ever been in a situation like this, when they're walking around the room, what are they saying? Well, that's not right. And, and that's the wrong thing. And Aunt Susan is allergic to that. All of this is wrong. When we get to Jesus in this passage... In John chapter 2, as he approaches the temple that Solomon is told us to approach in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, he looks around and he sees, well, that's not right. And, and that's not right. And, and that's wrong. What are you doing? And I wonder how often God looks at my approach to him and says, that, that's not right. That you miss, you, you're just missing something. Do you really not know who I am? Jesus makes a whip of cords. I'm glad my wife doesn't have one of those. And he drove everything out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out money's changers' coins and he overturned their tables. He told them who were selling doves, Get these birds out of here. 
Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered zeal for this house. His father's house is going to consume him. Jesus, friends, if you're a note taker, did not die for us to be able to approach God lightly. He died so we could approach God at all. When you move beyond this initial passage where he's telling us to listen, to guard your steps, the next thing he says is don't be hasty to speak and don't be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Jesus, the, the writer, the, the Solomon says to us, have you considered the wording when you talk about God? Have you thought about the way that you are expressing to God the way that you think about Him? Do you think about how weighty your words are or how, honestly, how flippant our words can be? And we can be singing the right things. So let's be, here's one of the things that I love. I love Jared. And I love the songs that he chooses because they are deep and they are rich and they're theological. And there are words that sometimes I'm like, I've got to look that up. But as we sing in here every Sunday, I would encourage us to be careful when we sing the words that we sing and consider the way that we're singing them. Because there are times in every church on every Sunday morning where a pastor or a worship pastor looks at a room and it seems as if the room is being punished. What are we saying about God when we sing to Him? And what are we saying in the way that we sing those words? the writer continues and he says this in verse 4. He begins to talk about making vows. When you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it because he does not delight in fools. I love that the Bible uses the word fool there. God, two times, as a matter of fact. We use the word God six times in these seven verses and he talks about fools second most. Don't be a fool. Think about what it means when you approach this God. This prophet is blasting the idea of ritual for, in the place of repentance. Ritual is not good enough. None of your rituals and none of my rituals matter without repentance. Why? Because God, if you're a note taker, God refuses re ritual without repentance. Your church stuff? Does, do you really think that God sits in heaven and looks down at us on a Sunday morning and says, Man, I was... Oh my me, I cannot believe they showed up today. I'm just shocked they would walk through the door. I'm such a better God because they chose to sit in that chair and look like they were being beaten. We tell God we're going to follow Him. We follow Him, we don't follow through. What is the fool's sacrifice? It's formal action with no, broken, no brokenness. God, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to do this.
They don't follow through. The, the, the idea of the cherubim, if you were to walk into that temple, there's a tapestry there, and there's a cherubim, an angel on it. It's symbolic of what we see in the book of Genesis, the idea of the separation of God and man. And, and what we're finding in the temple, is it's where, it's where heaven and earth are supposed to meet. But even in that, there's this symbolism of, of separation because there is God and you're not. There's the infinite, there's the finite. There's the, there's, he is altogether different. But God has chosen to, to meet with us and we just flippantly respond to Him. We make, we make promises to God that we're not going to fulfill. We try to manipulate God with our words to get what we really want. I had it. My mom passed away. I was 16 years old. I've shared this with some of you guys. And I, my dad and I didn't have a great relationship. We actually had a strange, awkward relationship. Because my dad struggled with drugs and he struggled with alcohol and he struggled with, at times, it did not seem like he cared. Now, I believe that he cared in whatever way he could care. But I remember when my mom was sick and in the last week of her life, looking on my porch and there was a well-meaning pastor who'd come by and I noticed my dad was kneeling to pray with him because my mom, after all, she's sick and we're talking at the end of her life. We knew it was near the end. And I watched as my dad's kneels down with his pastor and he begins to pray I'm going to follow you I'm going to trust you and all of these things and, and for a 16 year old who's watched his dad really struggle with, with life and everything that comes with life I'm thinking about this is great dad's going to follow after Jesus but my dad prayed a prayer because he wanted my mom to live that's what he wanted so I'm going to barter with God to get what I really want. And we may think that that's silly and this exaggerated illustration. That's what we do all of the time. We have this formulaic worship. We have this idea of manipulation. This is just what we do. We perform the ritual and we miss why we're performing the ritual. We're told obedience is better than sacrifice. Again, that word translates, listen, just listen to me, God says. What if you and I really listen to God? We keep offering trinkets. Approaching and listening. We struggle to fear God. Go with me to verse 7. I think that the, the writer says it this way. For many dreams bring futility, and so do many words. Therefore, fear God. The fear of God is this healthy idea of us thinking about who God is and why God happens to be that. No, Charles Bridges, pastor, says, The fear of God is the grand fundamental to godliness. Are we people who fear God? We struggle to fear God because we live in a world where there's no concept of authority. If you've ever been to a Little League game, there are coaches who are there, and you will hear not even whispers anymore, but conversations about how much of a moron they, these parents think the coach is. We have no concept of authority because our children have never misbehaved. 
We see it every time that we point out something a child's doing that needs to be constructively reconsidered. We see no concept of authority over and over and over. We are in an authorityless world. How could God really be an authority in that? When we look at this text, we say we're supposed to fear God. Or are we off, are we approaching Him in fear? Are we seeking and thinking about how great this God happens to be, and how this God is the ultimate authority who puts politicians in place, whether we like them or not? Who gives our child the teacher that they have? even if they don't really function the way we think they should. Who gives us the little league coach who drives us crazy. I'll be honest, I've been that little league coach. And God would have us to approach him in fear and think, all of these little authorities are given to you because I'm, I just want you to see that you really are helpless apart from me. And powerless. The idea of fear is such a weird word. And it's one of those words that when we read it in the Bible, we begin to try to undo it immediately. And I've heard pastors who've been in my position, and I've not just heard them, I've been the pastor who stands. So, well, when the Bible says fear, it really means respect. And I believe that in a sense. But I also see that as I read through the Bible, whenever people approach not even God, an angel of God, they fall down. I don't fall down because I respect people. I respect Greg Smith. I've never fallen down in front of him. (laughs) The whole idea of approaching God with a fearful respect is us realizing that we are powerless and helpless in his presence. As a friend of mine points out, you hear people talking about what they're going to do when they get to heaven as if it's a right of theirs. And they let you know that when they get there, you know, I've got a bunch of questions for God. Yeah, he's probably not going to listen. Why don't you listen up? I'm going to tell God a thing or two. Why don't you try that? Let me know how that goes for you. The fear of God, as we see it in the Scriptures, we, we look into the Old Testament, we look into the New Testament, and whenever the fear of God strikes, people fall down in His presence. And the only place where we see them getting up is when He allows them to. John deals with something similar in John chapter or in Revelation chapter 1. We, we look and we see John with Jesus, God in the flesh, walking into the temple saying, this is not right and this is not right and there's no consideration for me and there's no thought for me. This is such a miserable expression of what it means to meet with God. And John in Revelation says this, I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction kingdom endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. That's where he He's been punished because they can't kill him. 
on the Isle of Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to these seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. That's Jesus. He knows who Jesus is. But he's dressed in a robe and with golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp, double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and he said, Don't be afraid. I'm the first and I am the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and I hold the keys of death and hell. Therefore, I want you to write what you've seen, what is, and what will take place after this, the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. When he talks about being dead in this passage, he's talking about the sacrifice that makes it so that we could be people who fall down and then get back up. He's talking about the sacrifice of himself. He's talking about a sacrifice made by God that Jesus did not turn away from. He's talking about the sacrifice that we celebrate on a Sunday when we take communion. Even in our communion, we have to be very careful not to take it like a snack. So if you're a believer in this room, we've seen this idea of listening to God throughout this passage very present in the passage. And the band's going to lead but before they do, before you take steps to get your communion cup, and look, we know that people are worried about germs and everything else, and we want to be considerate of that. So we've got these cups that I think are super weird. But there's a cracker in there, and there's a cup there. But before you go take this cup that you're going to think is kind of dumb... Can we just sit in the silence for a moment and consider who it is we're meeting with and who's allowed us into his presence? And listen. Your heads are bowed. And I want you to talk to him. I want you to listen to him. And then as you are ready, go take the cup.